Warren's already read for us from Psalm 85 uh, in the NIV. I want to read a version of that psalm uh, from the message translation by Eugene Peterson before we turn to God's word. Psalm 85, a Korah psalm. God, you smiled on your good earth. You brought good times back to Jacob. You lifted the cloud of guilt from your people. You put their sins far out of sight. You took back your sin-provoked threats. You cooled your hot, righteous anger. Help us again, God of our help. Don't hold a grudge against us forever. You aren't going to keep this up, are you? Scrowling and angry year after year. Why not help us make a fresh start, a, a resurrection life? Then your people will laugh and sing. Show us how much you love us, O God. Give us the strength of the salvation that we need. I can't wait to hear what he'll say. God's about to pronounce his people well, the holy people he loves so much, so they'll never again live like fools. See how his close salvation is to those who fear him. Our country is home base for glory. Love and truth meet on the street. Right living and whole living embrace and kiss. Truth sprouts green from the ground. Right living pours down from the skies. Oh yes, God gives goodness and beauty. Our land responds with bounty and blessing. Right living strides out before him and clears the path for his passage. Amen. You know, Psalm 85 reminds me of one of those front decks of a tape player. Or for those of you who are too young and don't know what that even is, a stereo system, well, think of a remote control. This is a psalm in which the psalmist has all the buttons in front of him. And he starts with rewind, he then hits play, he pauses for a moment and then he fast forwards. This evening I'm going to reflect that in our service structure as I take us through this psalm using these directional buttons. First of all, let's rewind with the psalmist in Psalm 85 and verses 1 to 3. I wonder, have you ever been discouraged or felt downcast because the life you're living does not seem as real or joyful as the life you had just after you first became a Christian? Maybe these unique circumstances over the past few months have contributed to that. And even before the empty pew syndrome set in, maybe you were someone who was struggling with your faith. Have we been battling with feeling bogged down in our Christian lives, disappointed in church, disappointed in ourselves, disappointed with other Christians, frustrated that the circumstances in life, at work, our family, seem to be tying us up and weighing us down, that we seem to be going nowhere in our walk with God. Did all of the joy of our salvation seem so past tense? Is it all just ancient history to us? Did the freshness of our faith appear to have passed its sell-by date? Were we living off the fumes of previous spiritual experiences without really having that present joy? For the psalmist appears to be feeling it too, isn't he? In Psalm 85, we read in those opening verses <coughs> excuse me, that he's pining for the past. He has his finger firmly on rewind and he wants to go back. Many of you can recount with me the, the meetings held around Macrofelt when people in their teens and 20s squeezed together on a Saturday night for praise and preaching and nothing else was like it. 
Others recall how the local CWU halls were filled to overflowing or people were cramming and falling out of the, the such capacity of the tent missions and people were falling to their knees, bowing before God in conversion. Or the awesome event they went to as a youth group or that amazing weekend away or that long week of teaching, whatever it might be, there was that tangible sense of God's presence as people prayed in small groups like never before, never mind recalling history of different revivals that have marked out our land over these past centuries. I'm sure all of us can recall a time, a place of spiritual significance that we then compare all our other Christian experiences to. Almost judging then how effective it was in comparison to any recent events, we always rewind in our memories to those times. And encouraging as those times might have been for our mind, it maybe then leads to discouragement that we aren't in that place right now. That spiritual glow isn't just as bright. But that's not entirely the point of Psalm 85 when it talks about reviving us. For throughout Christian history, there will be those God-given, spiritually enlightening events that shape us. But Psalm 85 isn't about the good old days and rewinding to those. But rather, it's God's incredible past mercies towards his people. ITV and BBC have a lot to answer for in these days of lockdown because of the lack of live sport and new programmes that aren't being produced. And as a result, they're showing FA Cup finals from the 80s and 90s, European and World Cup tournaments from the 70s, 80s and 90s, cricket matches, comedy shows, classic TV from yesteryear that are bringing me back to my formative years as a child and then as a teenager and my social life back then. And every time one of those programmes comes on, I wax lyrical to my family about, oh, he was a great player, or he was one of the best of his generation, or this is one of the best finals you'll ever see, or this is the funniest programme you'll ever watch, or this is the best song of its generation, harking back, but it's of no real help in the present. It just gives a warm, fuzzy glow to the yesteryear. And as Christians, we need to be so careful in our own personal walk with God that we don't spend our whole time looking back, telling everyone how great things were back then, ignoring the needs right now. Because we can all get it. And the older I got, the more I found myself doing that. Oh, things were so much better back then. When that is actually not true. It's ignoring the needs of the present when we dwell so much in the past. We need to ask ourselves in Rewind, what is the most important thing that God has done for us in history and base everything else in our Christian lives around that? The psalmist, in order to climb out of this spiritual depression, does not just recall exciting times that he had, but he recalls verse 1, Lord, you showed favour to this land. Verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered their sins. Verse 3, you set aside all your wrath and turn from great anger. He wants them and he wants us to see that the only rewind that matters is that day when God forgives sin. For the Israelites, this was almost a generational thing because they were in such a circle, such a cycle, such a pattern of sinning against God and needing forgiveness. 
and knowing God's patient, rich mercy. The language of Psalm 85 verses 2 and 3 is salvation language. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered their sins. You set aside all your wrath. If God gives us, you know, good health, a happy supportive family, a good job, praise and appreciation from our boss or a few close friends, then we feel ourselves blessed. But if any one of those things are taken away from us, we suppose that somehow God has let us down or somehow God has forgotten us. But the psalmist urges us here, that is not the case. We are continually underwhelmed by the overwhelming nature of God's grace extended to us. We forget how truly blessed we are to have sins forgiven, to be delivered from the justice of God's wrath to the atoning death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They covered their sins of Psalm 85 verse 2, described what we call atonement. God making us one with him all through what he has done in Jesus. The setting aside of God's wrath, the hellish judgment that should have come to us is summarised in the theological word then propitiation. God covers our sin and then he removes our sin. He places our sinfulness on the sinless one. He receives the fury of the sin that we deserved and he takes it in that one place, in that one time. And you see, we've got to realise as Christians who have the New Testament, this was not just some process that was worked out clinically in a courtroom, but it was carried out brutally in the blood, sweat and tears of the cross called Calvary in a person that we call Christ in his own body on that tree. If only, if only when we were feeling downcast and had that deadening sense of going nowhere and doing nothing and all the frustration of the lack of activity, we should at that moment, yes, hit rewind, not saying things were so much better when I was younger, but rather we should go and rewind and gaze at the beauty of the glory of our God and the person of Jesus Christ as he hangs on that tree for you and for me. Looking at that cross and saying, my God, you did that for me. Don't make others feel left out or envious or longing to be back in the places that meant something to us or the meetings that blessed us exponentially in our Christian lives. Rather, let's get back to the only place, the only place where sins are forgiven, where we see the beauty and the power, the commitment and the care, the compassion and justice and joy at the cross, at the cross, at the cross, where God's red hot wrath was turned aside, our sins of whatever sort or shape or scandal were dealt with, where we stood forgiven at the cross. Let me ask you to rewind regularly, become increasingly cross-eyed in order to get this clearer vision of who we are and the kind of salvation God that we have. So Psalm 85 verses 1 to 3 encourage us to rewind, but then urges us in verses 4 to 7 to press play. We read there, Restore us again, God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. These verses are a prayer for restoration, revival and a return to rejoicing. 
And the root word repeated across these verses is the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn or to turn around. And no two commentators can agree whether it's a call for us as God's people to turn around or for God to turn back around to us and show us mercy again. Either way, this is not simply the psalmist's concern for himself, but for his people. For we read it, the us, us, us of verses four to seven, and it highlights the fact we're all in this together as the song goes. This was a corporate cry. You remember that three weeks ago, the blessing went viral, the United Kingdom blessing. Scores of you shared it on Facebook and Instagram. And if you haven't seen it, it's a beautiful rendition of what we call the ironic blessing that's recorded in Numbers chapter 6 that we often sing at baptisms in our church family. But it was recorded by hundreds of artists and singers from different church fellowships across Britain. I encourage you to see it. It's, it's really moving. And what is at the heart of that blessing? It is a call from Numbers chapter 6. God be gracious to us and bless us. May your face turn to us and shine upon us once again. For when God's face really does turn towards us and shine upon us, when his smiling face looks upon us, it means we're blessed by his presence. It means that we are in favour with God. We're accepted by him through his covenant love. But when God hides his face from us, we receive judgment and are separated from him. It's really a heaven and hell. God's smile or God's frown. And this is a very good prayer to pray for us and for us as a people at this time when we need to be assured of God's pleasure, knowing that his anger has been turned away. We need an assurance of that. But here we must see that you can only revive or have revival where something already has a flicker of life. Dead things can't be revived. I found a frog the other day. It was very much alive and hopped right across our garden. But I also find a dead bird. Uh, that thing couldn't be revived. It was gone. It was dead. Whereas if I poked the frog, it hopped. Dead things can't be revived. Dead things need to be resurrected. But things that are threatening to peter out or fizzle or flop, these things that are run down or flat or weary or worn out can be revived. And if you're like me in one of these latter categories, feeling very run down and flat and weary and worn out in some of these days, we need revived. The signs of life, although limited with the stats low and the pulse weak and the breathing shallow, can always return to strength, can't they? You see, contrary to popular Christian thought, true revival does not begin out there somewhere in Macrafelt, but it doesn't start in the deadness of the world. People here without Christ are dead. They can't revive themselves but it's the weakness of the church. That's where revival starts. The world is dead and needs resurrected, but God's people are flat and we need jump started. We're wounded and weak and we need revived. It might be sin that's caused it to slip. It might be circumstances that have caused it to turn away from God and we need to get back. But there's no better place to see this illustrated than in Jesus' famous parable of the sower and the seed. Do you remember it? Four kinds of people are in that story, represented by the four different kinds of seed in the soil. It relates to everyone who hears God's word regularly and what they do with it. In other words, the church, people like you and me who hear it Sunday by Sunday, that's what the story of the parable of the sower is all about. People like us. 
Some seed falls on the wayside, it falls in hard, disgruntled, disinterested heart, and it's snatched away. The devil, we read, is like a little bird that pecks away wherever he can, removing the seed. And if I was to ask you, where do you think Satan, even at this time in the world, concentrates his efforts? Well, we might have said in the past, oh, it's secrets in Macrofelt and the Saturday night, that den of iniquity. Or it might be at Bryson's on any given day of the week. Or at a heavy metal rock concert. Or behind the bicycle sheds at school. Or in some voodoo ceremony that's all eerie and spooky. No. No, friends. Do you know when Satan is most active? Right here. Right now. As you and I respond to and listen to God's word. Satan is most active on your sofa right now. Distracting you from God's word. He's as real as the sofa that you're sitting on. He's pecking away at many of us to take that good seed away so that we won't respond thinking in our minds, this word from David tonight from Psalm 85 doesn't really matter to me. Or the rocky places where the seed lands and there's a Sunday night enthusiasm. Yes, this is great. Oh, we're on fire for God today. But Monday morning realism kicks in and everything just fizzles out. Or the thorny ground is that place that chokes the life out of any meaningful growth. And the thorns aren't gross immoralities, Jesus says, that we condemn in the world around us. No, it's the deceitfulness of wealth that works in us. It's worry that stifles. It's wanting more that stifles our Christian growth. These are the spiritual killers. These innocent looking powers are insidious, are enough to squeeze the spiritual life right out of any of us. All these things turn us from God because we've turned in on ourselves. But there's an incredible fruitfulness for those who turn to God in faith. Who turn their eyes and ears and hearts to Jesus and his word and drink it all in. A potential yield, Jesus says in Matthew 13. Incredibly, if you worked it out, of 10,000%. Some of you farmers and businessmen out there are licking your chops thinking of that. A return of 10,000% from the seed that's sown. How? By hearing the word, accepting it, receiving it, responding to it, and welcoming it. This is what God's word does. This is bringing a fruitful life. Like the psalmist, we are asking, pleading, and praying, revive us again, O God. Have you ever seen a small child and maybe a friend comes around and they're having a bit of fun a friend of the family and tickling the child and the child laughs and the, the friend backs off and then he goes and tickles again. The child is in hysterics and you do it again. And the child after a while keeps saying, again, again, tickle again. Or playing people or hide and seek and you hide away and go boop. And the child, again, again, this never ending game. Well, folks, if you're feeling weak tonight, if you're struggling to survive in your Christian life just now, if you're low and lethargic, have you ever simply prayed that prayer that's outlined for us in Psalm 85? Again, Lord, again. This is not a prayer that necessarily will shake a nation, but it might reshape our condition. It's getting back to God and saying, look at verse 7, show us your unfailing love, Lord. Grant us your salvation. Do you get it? How crystal clear is this call? It's not coming to God saying, we're back here, Lord. We're back for you. Here we are. Bless us. 
Here we're bold enough, we're brilliant enough, we're faithful enough. Now come back to us. No, this prayer says, we are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. I am weak, but he is strong. But yes, Jesus loves me. We don't come before God pleading our own merits. We come before God reminded of his mercy. Lord, play your salvation track again in my life. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. All of us can promise the world before God. Lord, when all of this is over, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to be a so much more committed Christian. I will do my bit, Lord. No, no, no. That is not what these verses are asking. For all of us will run out of steam. All of us will get whacked and grow weary. We need him to play the soundtrack of his unfailing love in our ears over and over and over again. Oh God, show us our sins. They are many, but your mercy is more. Verse 7, show us your unfailing love. Grant us your salvation. Lord, play your salvation song in our hearts again. We pray, revive your work in us. Lord, revive us as a church. Let us not be embers flickering faintly, but let us be fires burning brightly. Lord, deal with our hearts, we pray. Remove what is dross and distracting and dirty and deceitful, the wants and the wastes. Our sins are many, O God. But remind us of your mercy. So we have rewind, we have press play, and now we need to pause Verses 8 and 9, Psalm 85. I will listen to what the God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him. That his glory may dwell in our land. Here we take time to pause. The writer is asking, do you hear what I hear? What is God saying to his people? Whenever we stop, whenever we take time to consider God and his word, what is it he's saying? What do we hear? Well, in these verses, it's peace and a promise. Peace and a promise. It's the ancient idea of shalom, that Hebrew sense of wholeness and completeness and understanding that with God, we lack no good thing. There are no gaps in God's provision. There are no glaring omissions. And that leads to a certain peace for God's people. For those who remain faithful do not give up. You see, the incredible thing with our God is that he does not just speak it. He is it. He is not all word, but he is works. God does not just say, well, go and work out peace for yourself. Rather, he is our peace and provides our peace. Jesus did not say in the upper room in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Shake, your, shake yourselves up, men dear. Get a grip and leave it at that. No, rather he said, my peace I leave with you. I do not give as the world gives. In this world there will be trouble, but do not be afraid. Why? Because he had told them, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the provider the giver of peace. He's the one who is the way through the storm. He is the path through all this pandemic. Or in the graveyard in John chapter 11, Jesus did not just say to Mary and Martha, hey ladies, come on, get out of it. Snap out of this bereavement. I know that Lazarus is gone, but come on, I'm here. No, 
He says, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. But Jesus was not all lip. He actually delivered new life. Jesus is not just into dramatic one-liners to make us all go, wow, what an exciting God he is. No, he actually produces the goods. He backs up what he said with his lips through his life. And he shouts, Lazarus. And a dead man exits the tomb. And deeper than that, and more desperate still, just a few days later, he too lies in a tomb and three days later walks out victorious. So whenever Jesus says, get peace, he actually provides that peace. He is that enduring promise that we need. His resurrection is our guarantee that we have peace with God, our sins forgiven, his sacrifice acceptable before God. In him we have peace. Verse 9 tells us, oh, if we would be those who are truly in awe of our God, in true reverence of a God who restores and renews in patient and persistent peace-giving, promise-keeping, then his glory will return to our land. So what are we to do? Well, in colloquial terms, we need to put our own house in order first, don't we? We need to be known as the most reliant people upon God's mercy, the most overwhelmed sinners by the gift of his salvation, the most peace-filled people. For the glory of God in the Old Testament was seen in the fire and the cloud over the temple. Those looking on would have said, oh, God is with them. God is there at this time. He's there. That's where he lives. But step into the New Testament as we read this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. We read that God's glory rests by his spirit in his people, with his people. Many, many times I have felt unworthy at representing Christ to others since the task is so daunting. But we are weak human vessels subject to imperfection and breakage. How can an imperfect people like us bring glory to Christ? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 enlightens us in this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Do you see this? It's not all about us. We are jars of clay. We are pottery containers. Paul uses his example, the most common pottery containers found in every household in his day. And what is clay? Well, clay is dirt that's molded into something by a craftsman. And that is what we are. We are dirt that have been molded into the workmanship of Christ and fired in that kiln of Christ for our durability. Archaeological digs over the centuries have found many, many hundreds of thousands pieces of broken clay pots. Pottery vessels were just useful for a while, but had a very limited working life. They were the ancient equivalent of today's plastic bag that just blew a bite of no real lasting value. They crack, they break, they split, they dissolve and go back to clay again. We're just containers. But friends, we are containers of God's amazing grace, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have that. That is in us. Have you ever felt powerless and weak in yourself? I have. Paul did. The psalmist feels it here too. But the one who indwelt Paul and now is in you and me, he is not weak and helpless. We are just limited vessels. But our God is the unlimited contents of that vessel poured out to quench the spiritual thirst of lost humankind. 
Friends, it's not about you. It's all about him. If the world can ever get a glimpse in us of this boundless treasure that's inside, they'll be blown away. It's not about us. It's not about the fact that we're now good living. No, it's the fact we're cracked and broken and sinful, but we have a saving treasure inside. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Let's pause. Let's pause and listen to what the Lord says. Are we trying to be something we are not? Are simply trying to be his? Broken vessels, broken pots, but full of Christ. Let's hit pause and you think about that. Finally, we fast forward with the psalmist in Psalm 85 and verses 10 to 14 where the psalmist reveals his own heart at the end of the psalm, knowing that this world is not as it should be. It's as if he's on tiptoes, craning his neck, looking forward to see what's going to happen to lift us out of our discouragements. And he does so very effectively. Verse 10 is the most poetic, isn't it? Especially in the New King James Version, where we read, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is generally understood as pointing to the, the work of Jesus Christ and making atonement for our sins in which the, our own uh, failures and sinfulness are met by the justice and righteousness of Christ who was the sinless one. It's when two worlds come crashing together. It has reminded me this week of the space race that was often talked about during the 60s to the 80s that we heard about and we're seeing it played out to some extent again with this uh, this Falcon uh, SpaceX rocket that was due to have launched from Florida on Wednesday night past that we could all follow or see in the sky even for a few fleeting minutes heading for the International Space Station. But something more dramatic is happening in these verses. It's the two worlds colliding of heaven and earth. Not space and earth, but heaven and earth. Holiness and sinfulness, our broken restlessness and his shalom peace. It's where God and man meet. And when God and man meet, it should have resulted in justice being carried out and our sins being dealt with on us receiving hell as God from heaven turns his back upon us. But rather we see it carried out as one man is raised between heaven and earth the man Christ Jesus, the only one who had experienced both heaven and earth and was sinless and perfect in both. Where heavenly beauty has met earth's horrors and it happens in the death of our saviour. And Jesus is our man, but he's also God's man. He's our saviour, but he's God's saviour, God's son, God's king that he provides. It's earth's sinless substitute, but God's chosen lamb, all in this one man. It is in this one man on that mount of crucifixion where fountains open deep and wide, bursting open the floodgates of God's mercy, flowing a vast and gracious tide, as we often sing. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, where heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed, isn't that a lovely phrase? Kissed a guilty world. But he kisses us in love. 
It wasn't just social distancing that we should have known from God, but our sinful, hellish distance. But he kisses us in love. Only in Jesus Christ do we meet mercy and truth. Heaven come to earth. The fast forward button is always a good one to have because if you want to skip to the end to find out what happens, there's always something more that we want to yearn for. We want to get there quickly. It's a little bit like, you know, those of you who've got young children or parents who've had young children in a car, what's the question they always ask? Are we there yet? Five minutes into the journey on holiday, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And for centuries, that was the question that God's people in Israel asked. Things were not as they should have been. Are we there yet? Has the Saviour come yet? Has God's perfect righteousness met with our justice? Are we there yet? God's people are flops when it comes to faith. But he has persisted with us and he's returned to us in mercy over and over and over again. Whilst does God's church today Saved by the intervention of Christ, many now follow in his steps to that place of eternal righteousness where there is perfect peace and eternal harmony and never-ending joy. It should be right for the Christian to ask of God, are we there yet, Lord? Are we there yet? One translation puts verse 13 like this. Right living strides out before him and clears a path for his passage. An Old Testament echo of Jesus' words in John 14. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? One day we will. Remarkably following the footsteps of our Saviour. Not to the cross and the punishment that we deserve. But to the place of perfection and harmony. Fast forward to that place. Oh, to be there, to share in that, to know him, to see him, to worship him in a place without contradiction or dereliction or disappointment or sin. A place of holiness, free from harm, bursting with hope. A place because of the collision between those two worlds, heaven and earth, where justice and righteousness, God's frown at sin and God's smile upon his people were met in Jesus. And he kisses us while his son is condemned. And now we get to call that place home. Oh Lord Jesus, come again. 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 Come again to us. Oh Lord, come meet with us in our own homes. Even sitting on these sofas in our living rooms, in our bedrooms, wherever. Lord, come to us. Meet with us again. Come. Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus.